Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Isn't it interesting that we worship a slain Lamb? And the symbol that symbolizes what we believe is an old rugged cross, a couple of beams nailed together. Now that cross is used for decorations, used for jewelry, a necklace around the neck, charms, tattoos. We see it all over the place. Scripture also says the cross is a stumbling block. What's the meaning of Easter? Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He gave us full access to worship God by by tearing those curtains apart, the Holy of Holies, to give us total and complete full-time access to worship the Father. When Jesus rose on the third day, He defeated Satan once for all. And now He provides us a guarantee of life everlasting. So I would say yes, 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 and yes. But he did, he did so much more. Here's a question. How many of you, I won't ask you to raise your hands, how many of you are struggling with or fighting with your sinful nature? Had one hand. <laughs> we just sang... You are our everything, and we adore you. What does that mean? You are our everything. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2 that in Christ you have been brought to fullness. The King James Version says that you are complete in Christ. What does that mean? Complete in Christ. That's a big, that's a huge word. The last words that Jesus spoke on the cross were, it is finished. I love those words. There's something satisfying about bringing a project to completion, isn't there? How many of you have worked on a 1,500-piece puzzle for weeks, and you come to the end, and there's one piece missing? Oh my goodness, <laughs> something wrong. It's not finished. It's not complete. It hasn't been brought to the fullness that it was supposed to have been brought to. But not so with Jesus Christ. He said, it is finished. This morning I want us to look at a passage in Colossians chapter 2, which describes what Jesus finished. It's an amazing profound passage. Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 to 15, five verses. It says, In Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is ahead over every power and authority. In Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ." 
He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authority, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Wow, what a passage. I've entitled this message, Complete in Christ. We have been made complete in Christ. We have been brought to, excuse me, to fullness. Now you're going to have to get used to that phrase because I'm going to repeat it over and over again. So just, just get used to it. We're going to get it drummed into us, all right? What does that mean in our everyday life? You know, there are some things that Paul says here in these verses that are going to stretch the finiteness of our minds. At which time we might just have to say, Whew, well, God said it, so I believe it. I may not understand all of it. And this passage may even boggle your minds because this past week when I was working on it, it boggled mine. I want to introduce this concept of having the fullness or the completeness in Christ by reminding ourselves of something that, that we looked at in the beginning parts of Matthew as we're, as we're studying some of the earlier chapters. Remember when Jesus started his ministry, he, we looked at the healings that Jesus performed, many of them. Let me read just a few of those verses and see if you can catch a common theme or a common word. I'm going to read actually uh, them from the King James Version because it translates a Greek word well that Jesus used for healing. Listen, in Matthew 9, 22, Daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith has made you whole, and the woman was made whole from that hour. Matthew 12, 13. Then he said to the man, stretch forth your hand, and he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like the other. Matthew 15, 28. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. We could go on and on. The word we're looking for, obviously, is whole. Jesus made them whole. The same word is used in Mark and in Luke and in John in describing the healings of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 9, Peter is preaching, and we read this, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. In Acts 9.34, Peter says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ makes you whole. Arise, make your bed. Some parents are probably thinking, I wish Jesus would make my kids whole so they could arise and make their bed. Sorry. That's... Now, <laughs> what you see in these passages is a consistency in the style of healing that Jesus did. When Jesus healed somebody, he made them whole, entirely well. No missing part, no bent parts, no broken, no, no twisted parts. All the healing miracles of Jesus, he made people completely healthy. There was no progression involved. It was whole instantly. Now you say, what in the world does that have to do with Colossians chapter 2 that we just read? Well, I believe that Jesus, in the same way he healed physically, he heals spiritually. 
If Jesus heals physical illness and makes people entirely whole, then that is exactly what is meant by the apostle here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, when he says, In Christ you have been brought to fullness. You are complete in Christ. We could put the word whole in there as well. Just as Jesus Christ did miracles of healing that made people entirely well, completely whole, so when Jesus touches a life spiritually and gives salvation, it is entire salvation. It is a whole salvation. That person becomes spiritually entirely well. And Paul describes it in a different way as well in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is, is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all, all things. There's the wholeness. All things have become new. Now, this is nothing new. God has always had, uh, planned it this way. He's always done it that way. When David cried out in the midst of his sin in Psalm 51.10, he knew what God would do, and he said, God created me what? A clean heart. Not, not, not just wash my body and, and make me clean on the outside. Clean heart, whole, no spot, no blemish. When God acts against sin in His saving grace, there is wholeness. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, we read, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. This is the Old Testament. I will remove from them a heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. In John chapter 1, verse 16, we find John the Baptist talking about Christ, and he says, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. When we are saved... What did we receive? We received Christ's fullness. The wholeness of Christ became our wholeness so that, that somebody who becomes a Christian is spiritually whole. And that's Paul's whole point here, whole point, here in this, in this passage. He's trying to say to the Colossian believers, look, when you receive Christ, you were made whole. Just as a healthy man doesn't need any more medicine, you don't need human philosophy. This is the issue that the Colossians were fighting against. Paul was saying you don't need Jewish legalism. You don't need strange pagan mysticism, which they were getting caught up in. You don't need special mystic knowledge. You don't need anything else. It's all Christ. When you receive Christ and His salvation, you were made whole. And that's the whole point. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, he says, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision. That, that was a shocking news for them. But a new creation. There it is again, a new creation. Listen to 2 Peter 1.3. For His divine power has granted to us everything. Listen to this. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Well, how do we get that? Next phrase. Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. So when do we come to know Christ? The knowledge of Christ? When we're saved. At salvation, right? Then when do we get everything pertaining to life and godliness? The moment that we believe in Christ. This concept is so important to understand. That's, that's why I'm hammering on it. We've got, to, we've got to get this. We need to understand the truth of this because in a moment, I'm going to be going to the extreme and it may shake you up. But hang in there with me. 
So if we can say the miracles of Jesus made people whole physically, we can also say the spiritual transformation of salvation makes them just as whole spiritually. So when we become a Christian, a follower of Christ, making Christ our Lord, we have a clean heart. We have a new heart. We've got a new spirit, a soundness, a wholeness. And we become spiritually well, and we don't need to add anything else to it. No legalism, no asceticism, no mysticism, no human philosophy, no worldly wisdom. Now let's come back to Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. You are complete in Him. He is ahead over every power and authority. There's nothing missing. Christ fills you up. There is nothing else to add. You have been made full with the fullness of Him who fills completely. Getting the point? (laughs) I think so. When Jesus died on the cross, the last thing he said was, it is finished. And when he said that, I, he didn't mean it only referred to the last deed that he had to accomplish uh, from all the things that were prophesied from the Old Testament. He also meant it in terms of securing the fullness of salvation by that deed. It is finished. So at the risk of being redundant, what are we in in Christ? We are complete in Him. So what does that mean practically? What's the definition of completeness? Now, if Apostle Paul had been here this morning, he would have said thank you for that question because he is going to answer that in the next few verses here. And there are three ways in which we can be complete in Christ. There's complete salvation, verses 11 and 12. There's complete forgiveness in verses 13 and 14. And there's complete victory in verse 15. So let's take a look at these individually. The first is that Christ has provided complete salvation. Verse 11. In Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Let's look at this a minute. This is a verse that boggled my mind as I looked at the words carefully. Words have meaning. And we need to understand what the Holy Spirit is saying here. He says, look, Your salvation is absolutely complete. There's no need for you to be circumcised. Why? Because you've been baptized. We're going to be looking at that in a moment. Now remember, the heresy which the Apostle Paul is arguing against when he's writing this letter to the Colossian Christians... It's a kind of a, a bizarre mixture of pagan beliefs with mysticism and this special kind of knowledge, along with Jewish, uh, Jewish legal legalism. And along with it, they're trying to push the idea of the fact that you have to be circumcised. And this isn't anything new. The Judaizers did that in Galatia as well. They were telling the Gentiles, it's great that you believe, but in order to make that salvation complete, you've got to be circumcised too. And they had to have this operation and became a surgical salvation. So here in verse 11, Paul says, look, in Him you are already circumcised. Don't let anybody come along and fool you about some circumcision. You've been circumcised. How? How could these Colossian Gentiles have been circumcised without surgery? 
He said, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Rather than just some skin being cut off, we're talking about the putting off of your whole self ruled by the flesh. Do you know what that's saying? That's our sinful nature. How was that done? It was done by the circumcision which Christ did. You were circumcised by Christ. We're talking about a spiritual surgery, not a physical one. Now, all through the history of Israel, there were two views of circumcision. According to the law, every little Hebrew boy was circumcised on the eighth day um, after he was born. And that was a sign of him belonging to the covenant, the, the people of God, the children of Israel. And then it became kind of a controversial thing because there are two schools of thought that began to develop. One view was that circumcision itself was enough to save, basically a surgical salvation. If you just got circumcised, you became part of the covenant people. You became part of God's people. The physical act is all that was actually required. That became the typical view in Jesus' day and was continued as a typical view of the Jewish leaders in the time of Paul as well. And that's why in Romans chapter 2, verse 25, Paul says, circumcision, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become as though you've never been circumcised. He's saying that even though you may have been surgically circumcised, if you sin and rebel against all, it ain't going to do you no good. A few verses later, in verse 28, he says this, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. But that was the typical Jewish view. If you just had the external operation, you, you were in good standing with God. But then the other view was, and, and, and this is the correct one, that, that was the, circum, the circumcision was only an outward mark of a man inwardly committed to God. Novel idea, right? And they believed correctly. They believed that it was just a symbol on the outside of what really mattered on the inside, in the heart. And this is, has always been what God told them from the very beginning. You can go all the way back to Genesis. When God was first laying, laying out the laws and the rules there, in, in Exodus chapter 6, we find God sending Moses to Pharaoh. You remember, he had to go in and he was to call his people out of bondage and, and, uh, uh, and prison. And Mo Moses, it says, spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the children of Israel have not listened to me, how then shall Pharaoh hear me, who am of uncircumcised lips? And here you see Moses at the very beginning of time is using the concept of circumcision in a metaphorical sense, showing that what God is really after are people who have circumcised hearts, hearts that are dedicated to God. Circumcised lips, lips dedicated to God, not simply the act of surgery on a child, but the real issue was the heart. That's the same thing that Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, when he said, what comes out of your mouth, that's what defiles. Why? Because it comes from an unclean, impure, uncircumcised heart, a heart not dedicated to God. Even in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 40, we read, but if they will confess their sins and sins of their ancestors, then when their uncircumcised, what? Hearts. 
When their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant. It's all about the heart. God is talking to to them about that uncircumcised heart, not the physical circumcision. That was only a symbol. So back to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. He says, In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. We have had a special circumcision. What is it? Your whole self, now listen carefully, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. The Greek word for putting off is apekdusis. It's a double compound which denotes both stripping off and casting away. Stripping off and casting away. Your whole self ruled by the flesh. What is that? The only thing that could be referring to is our sinful nature. Our whole self ruled by the flesh. Are you understanding what I'm I'm, I'm getting at here? When we became a Christian, Christ cut away and cast away our sinful nature, the flesh. That's a circumcision done by Christ, and only Christ can do it. Any old priest of the Old Testament, any old doctor today can circumcise a man's foreskin. But only Christ can circumcise a person's heart. And that means cutting away the old sinful nature. When we became a Christian, our old nature was taken away, and we became a new creature with a new creation, with a new nature. You may be saying right now, are you telling me that when I became a Christian, God took away my old nature, my sinful nature? Yes. Because Scripture tells us that He gives us a new nature, all new, brand new. There was only one person ever that had two natures. That was Christ Himself, fully God and fully man. We can't have two natures. That's what Paul is saying in verse 11. Your whole self, your whole self ruled by flesh, your sinful nature was put off. Past tense was put off. Done. Completed. Finished. At the cross. Okay, hold on a minute, Pastor. If, we, if, if we've had our fallen nature put away, if Christ has put off the body of sins of the flesh, human nature in His fallen condition, sinful nature... And we've got this new nature. How come I still sin? Good question. The answer is basically this. God has given us a new nature on the inside, but we've still got this old body on the outside. Our old mind is still there, and those desires and will are still there. We've got a new inside. Our spirit has been made alive, but it's still residing in an old outside. A commentator by the name of David Garland, writing in the NIV application commentary, says this, There is a process of unlearning years of sinful habits that will take time and struggle. Then... All of a sudden, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 took on a whole new meaning to me. Listen, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Which bodies? The old outside bodies. 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your minds. We've got a new nature. Now we need to have our minds renewed to come into conformity with that new nature. Look at Romans 8 a minute. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh. What's he talking about? The sinful nature. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, on the things of that nature, of the sinful nature. But those who live according to the Spirit, what's that? That's that new nature that we have been given when we accepted Christ. According, those who live according to the Spirit with that new nature set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's a, a conscious decision we, we make. We have to set our minds on that new nature, on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the minds on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh, the mind that's still set on that old sinful nature, Paul says, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. With that old sinful nature, it is impossible to please God. But, Paul says in verse 9, you are not in the flesh. There it is again. You are not in the flesh. That flesh is gone. It's a definitive statement. Why can he say that? Because in Colossians, he says that Christ has put off that sinful nature. But instead, he says, you are in the Spirit. You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's that new nature in Christ. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 2. And how can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we, our sinful nature that we were born with, therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That's that new, new nature. That's that new life, the new spirit that he gives us. Our old nature is dead, folks. It cannot come back to life. Over and over again, Paul is emphasizing that our old nature is dead. It's dead. It's dead. Our old sinful nature is crucified, dead, and buried never to rise again. Think about that. He says it again in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and I, the old sinful nature, no longer live. But Christ lives in me. Christ's nature lives in me. The life I now live, which life is that? That's that new life, the new nature. The, the, the life I now live in the body, which body? The old body that's still there. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can we still be tempted? Yes. The enemy is still alive and well and trying to draw us away from God. Our bodies, our physical bodies, still have those cravings. 
that we have to fight against from time to time. The world is still out there trying to entice us away from the truth of God's Word. But now because our old nature is dead and buried, we no longer have to obey it. We no longer have to obey those cravings that we may have. We don't have to succumb to the, the, uh, the new world thought, thought pattern. The comedian Flip Wilson's quip, the devil made me do it, no longer is true. We can no longer use the excuse, oh, that's my nature, that's just the way I am. No! That nature is dead. We really need to wrap our minds around this concept. When we received Christ, that was the end of the old nature. Watchman Nee put it this way, our old history ends with a cross. Our new history begins with the resurrection. See, Christ saved us completely. We can't get any more saved than that. We're either saved or not. You're either married or not married. In 10 years, you're not more married. You're still married. And we don't need to add anything to that new nature that we haven't already been given by Christ except to bring our behavior into harmony now with that new nature. That's part of working out our salvation that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So Paul says you have the new life. It's been given to you when Christ circumcised your heart by taking away the old nature. The outward physical cutting away is absolutely irrelevant at this point. And he goes a step further in verse 12 there in Colossians 2. You have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now he's not talking about water baptism here. He's, he's not teaching what they call baptismal regeneration, which is salvation by baptism. If you get baptized, you're saved. Here Paul pictures the union of a believer with Christ. The word simply means placed into. We're being placed into Christ. And of course, water baptism, which, which we need to do, is a beautiful picture of what has taken place here spiritually. When, you, when we become a Christian, it's as if we were buried. We died. And then we rose again with a new life. And Paul says, you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And just as God raised Jesus, so he raised you from the dead when you believed in Christ. Your old life died, was buried, you rose with that new life. The believer then, when we put our faith in Christ, we're buried with Christ, it's, it's as if we go right back to the cross. And we're hanging there on the cross. Literally, if, if God, it's like God throws us back 2,000 years, puts us there on the cross with Christ. And then he takes us down, and he buries us in the tomb with Christ. And then on that third day, we come out with Christ, with a new life. That's why this passage is so important on Easter. Everything is accomplished by the death and resurrection of Christ, it is finished. We are so identified by faith with him that we are in his death, we are in his burial, and we are in his resurrection. It's amazing truth. 
It's all done by the working of God. The Greek word is energia, which means energy, the energy and the power of God. In Ephesians 1.19, Paul talks about that energy of God, the power of God, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That's the power he's using. And listen, God's energy, God's resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead then raises us from the dead so that we can then be received by Christ. We are buried, our, life, uh, our old life dies, and we become alive. And listen, there are only two things we can be, either dead or alive. That's it. And when you're alive, folks, you are alive. That's exactly what's happening here. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, 4, and we too may live a new life. How is that possible? Romans 6, 9 and 10, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin. How many times? Once for all. But the life he lives... He lives to God. Then look at verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. How many times do we have to die to sin? Once. Once. And we have. Think about it. You can't die more than one time. And sin and death and hell and Satan have no claim on us. That's an amazing truth. One commentator summarizing these, these verses here in Colossians puts it this way. You believers, you have no need of external circumcision. You have already received the true circumcision of the heart and life. Your whole sinful nature has been cut away. You received it by virtue of your union with Christ by faith. And when he was buried, you, your former wicked selves, were buried with him. When he was resurrected as, as new creatures, when, when he, as new creatures, you were resurrected with him, all by the power of God when you believed. It is done. It is complete. The old nature is dealt with. The new life has begun. Complete salvation is yours. You don't need anything else. That's pretty cool, huh? So by his death and resurrection that we celebrate on Easter, Christ provided complete salvation. He also provided complete forgiveness. Complete forgiveness. Paul is coming at it at the same reality from a different perspective. The first one emphasized the completeness of salvation apart from ritual. And here he's emphasizing the completeness of forgiveness apart from any work. And they go hand in hand. Look at verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in this uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. We were in bad shape, folks. But Christ conquered it all. What does it mean when Paul says you were dead in your sins? You and I were dead spiritually. It means an inability to respond. Dead people can't respond. If you see a dead, dead person, no matter what you do, there's no response. There's no reaction. Because dead people can't respond. When you go to a funeral, everybody's moving around except the person in the casket. 
And then everybody walks out of the funeral home except the person in the casket. That's what spiritual death is. It is dead in sin. It means to be so locked in sin that you are unable to respond to God. And the Bible makes no sense because it also is spiritually discerned. You can't react to God because you're spiritually a spiritual corpse. And so it's like God looks down on these people, on the, on, on the dead people, the d- dead in their sins, without Him, without hope, without the information, without revelation. And, 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 and what does He do? What's the one thing a dead man needs most? Life. And it says in verse 13, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins. That's exactly what it says in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with whom? With Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions. What does it mean, with Christ? Have you thought about that? What does that mean? We, We say it a lot. We agree to all of that. How does that work? Folks, I don't know how that works. But in some mysterious, divine, wonderful way, when we receive Christ, as we mentioned before, God spiritually, metaphorically, sends us back 2,000 years, puts us on that cross with Christ, buries us with Christ, raises up with Christ. I don't understand that miracle, but I love it. He says in Ephesians 2.5, He made us alive in Christ. Colossians 2.13, God made us alive with Christ. That's the truth. So spiritually dead people are utterly defeated, utterly uh, dominated by sin, powerless to break the sin that binds them, powerless to discover the truth of God. They are without hope, without God, without any choice, and locked into the sinful nature. And all of a sudden... God makes him alive. So you tell me who initiates salvation. You hear people say, I found the Lord. (laughs) We understand that sentiment. But that statement is not really true at all. You see, I didn't find the Lord. He found me. How is that possible? It's in Christ that's the message of Paul here in Colossians. Look and note two, two little words that he repeats over and over and over again throughout our passage. Verse 10, In Christ you have been brought to fullness. In Him you were also circumcised. You were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him. God made you alive with Christ. It's all Christ. That's the key. You put yourself in the hands of Christ and receive Him by faith, it then all becomes yours. And then he says, and here's the first major benefit at the end of verse 13, He forgave us all our sins. Past tense. It has already been done. That's miraculous. We read in Psalm 32, 1, Blessed is a man, happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Folks, I'm a happy camper today because I know that my sins are forgiven. How about you? Do you know that? Isaiah 1, 18, Come now, let us settle the matter. I love that phrase. God says, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. 
Isn't that great? White as snow, white as wool. And to top it all, top it all off, it's a settled matter, a done deal. How cool is that? Listen to Paul's preaching in Acts 13. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. That's amazing. I love Acts 10.43 as well. All the prophets testify about him that everyone, listen, who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Through his name. Have you thought about that? Did you catch what he's saying? That you receive forgiveness for believing. Say, yeah, what what, what about confessing? No, it's for believing. Now listen carefully so you don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. Confessing does not relate to forgiveness. It relates to acknowledging our sin and repenting of it. That's what confession is. You see, forgiveness is already a settled matter. Isaiah 118, it's a settled matter. Well, Pastor, what about 1 John 1, 9? Well, let's take a look at that. If we confess our sins, if we acknowledge our sins before God... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Why will he do that? How can he do that? Because it's already accomplished. Already a settled matter. Already taken care of at the cross. One lamb, one sacrifice, done. Once for all. You don't have to keep going back and keep slaughtering lambs over and over and over again for every sin. And then Hebrews 8.12 gives us this promise, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. One author wrote, I am always amazed at the fact that there are many Christians who continue to remember what God has forgotten. I used to call it a God complex. Listen, the highest court in the universe is God. And if God has forgiven me, the only thing that would justify my holding myself guilty for sin is if I am a higher authority than God. If I'm not, then I might as well forgive myself. (laughs) Isn't that good? You having fun yet? I am. Now let's look at verse 14. This, like all the rest, a great verse. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailed it to the cross. I want us to take a look at a couple of the words there in in the original language that that, uh, gives us the picture that Paul is trying to paint for us here. There's two Greek words in which the whole idea hinges. Number one, chirographon. Chirographon, it's a, it's a handwriting, a signature, a, 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 an autograph. Now, the NIV has this translated as, he canceled the charge, which is generally the point, uh, which is true. But very literally, literally, if you look at the Greek, it says he has blotted out, he has wiped out, erased the signature or the autograph. It's like, like when you write an IOU to someone, to someone and you sign it to make it valid. That's, that's the autograph. That's the chirographon. That, that's the, the signature. And if a handwritten signature is wiped off, what happens? The IOU is invalid. 
It's null and void. You can't be held liable. The moment we confess, the moment we acknowledge our sin, God blots that out. And what's the cleaning agent or the cleaning solution that God uses to blot that out? It's the blood of Jesus from the cross. And God, and God actually goes a step further, and that's the second word that I want to point out. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it, he has taken that which stood against us away and nailed it to the cross. Not only did he blot out the condemning signature of our name that, that uh, we were held liable, but, uh, by, but just like wiping a blackboard clean, he took the whole charge away. The whole thing is gone, destroyed. That, folks, is the forgiveness of God. So God, by our faith in Christ, took that indictment and he nailed it to the cross. We signed it, he erased it. You know what that's, what, what's left? Not one trace. Not one trace. And he remembers it what? No more. Complete forgiveness. Oh, the wonder of that kind of grace. It reminds me of the chorus of George Beverly Shea used to sing, Oh, the wonder of it all, the wonder of it all, just to think that God loves me. So we've got complete salvation. We've got complete forgiveness. And thirdly, and we're going to close here, we've got complete victory. Verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public, excuse me, public spectacle, I'm trying to meld two words, public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. They were all destroyed at the cross. Talk about victory. Where was it that Jesus bruised the head of Satan? At the cross. Where was it that he broke his power? At the cross. Where was it that he took away the power of death? At the cross. In Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, we read this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Satan's dominion was broken at the cross. And it came as a total shock to him. As Christ was hanging there on the cross, I'm sure the demons were having a party. They thought this was the best thing. They, they saw him bound their hand and foot, the nails through his hands, up on that, up on that cross in apparent weakness and defeat. And they, they, they imagined that he was their victim. But how wrong they were. You know, this past Thursday was April Fool's Day. Folks, it was like a cosmic April Fool's Day trick that was played on Satan. And he fell for it. Jesus mastered them, even in death. And 1 Peter 3 says, when his body went into the grave, you remember that? His spirit went into the place where the demons were bound. And it says he claimed his victory over them right there in their faces, in their place. Listen, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago. Who were the imprisoned spirits? They were demons that were bound since the time of Noah, Peter goes on to say. 
He made proclamation. That word means to proclaim after the manner of a herald, always with an authority which must be listened to and obeyed. Folks, he wasn't preaching or proclaiming the gospel to them. He was proclaiming their total defeat. He was proclaiming his power and victory over them once for all. What a victory! The death of Christ was a transformation. The death of Christ was a pardon. The death of Christ was a triumph. And that, folks, makes for a complete salvation. We are complete in Christ. We have been made full in Christ. And folks, we've got that same power. Don't let the enemy tell you anything different. That power, says Paul, is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Father, thank you. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for the completeness and the perfectness in which you do everything. Thank you for the wholeness. Spiritual healing, thank you for the purifying of us, the circumcision of the heart. Thank you for the new nature. And Father, as as we're trying to grasp this concept that we don't have to fight against the sinful nature anymore because it's gone, we have to step into that new nature. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to conform and help us to transform the way we think uh, by the renewing of our minds to bring it into line with that new nature. And we can have that victory. We, are no, long, we no longer have to be bound uh, to death, to sin, and to the, the, the temptations of, of the enemy. Uh, you have given us a victory. It's all in your power. We praise the name of Jesus. Amen.